when we want to connect with each other, how do we cross the great divide of different worldviews, cultures or religions? How can we work together effectively? Well, first, we need a bridge. Welcome to Bridging Peoples. In this Bridging Peoples podcast, we explore the human side of aid development and social change work. Join me as I chat with researchers and practitioners about their work around the globe. I'm your host, Deborah Cummins. In this episode, I'm chatting with Brett Levy, founder of Bilby Lab, creator of the Virtual Songlines Project, and self-described virtual heritage Jedi. And in the work that I'm doing in Virtual Songlines, which people probably don't know about yet, um, I'm trying to do that to determine identity, develop that identity in connection to country, and then it can serve multiple purposes. He's a First Nations man from the Kuma Nation in Australia. So, Brett, thank you so much for um, joining me for this chat. You're welcome. I, I like to start these conversations by um, starting with the personal, getting to know you, um, your background, where you're from, mm. to situate you in place. So, mm. tell me about yourself. Tell me about your family. Where did you grow up? Um, well, my family is um, uh, uh, Kuma people, so descendants of the Kuma Nation, and... Um, our country is uh, west of Brisbane, way out around Bolland. Mm -hmm. So you could say Bolland's the centre of our country and it extends from there. Um, and um, that country is where we, we've got our native title back. So that's important to note. Um, I, I grew up, I was born actually in Sydney, in Black, Blacktown. Mm -hmm. used to be called Blacktown, Blackstown a long time ago. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I grew up there and I was born there. And then... Um, after a while, mum and mum and dad, um, when dad finished in the navy, he wanted to come back to his family in Brisbane because there was no really no family down there, mm -hmm. and mum's family was up here too. So um, we came back up here, and then I grew, basically lived in Brisbane for a short time, and then went to the Gold Coast and grew up there. Um, but then came back to Brisbane to to boarding school, and off we went. So and I've been in Brisbane really ever since. Did you come from a big family? Massive no, I, I, there's only, I've got one brother and one sister. Uh -huh. in, uh, but then we used to always used to visit my grandma yeah. on, on my mother's side and also on my dad's side. Yeah. My dad's got, I think, nine brothers and sisters and my mum's got nine brothers and sisters. So lots of uncles. Mm -hmm. All different. Yeah. All different. Both families were not wealthy families, not mm. poor families, mm. poor families. So that's probably why my mum and dad got together. Because my dad's a white fella mm. from Murray, and my nana, or my mum's grandmother, was a black woman from Murray. So that's how it all came to pass. How did people view the relationship at that time? Between it was them? different, totally. It was the 60s, the beginning of the 60s, right at the very start of the 60s. So it was like frowned upon. Yeah. But Dad didn't care. Yeah. He liked, he liked my mum. Yeah. <laughs> and my mum was pretty good looking. <laughs> so you can't blame it. So yeah. she was pretty, pretty hot, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, what was like flag for you growing up? It was good. I mean, it wasn't bad. I mean, I, we when we were, when I say we were poor, I mean I, we used to not have a lot. 
and we lived in like not the greatest rental properties and um, we never really had a lot to eat but I never knew that was a problem Mm. so my mother never complained and my dad never complained my dad worked hard to get what he got my mother eventually didn't work at the beginning then worked out she had to work Mm. and let me just say it's very hard for an Aboriginal woman to get work back then and the only work she could get was as a cleaner or a cook Mm. And they weren't the most prestige, prestigious jobs back then. She used to cook. No, she did cleaning first, cleaning of of rental properties on the Gold Coast, and then eventually cooking for a nursing home. Mm. Now, having said those two things, all the kids worked cleaning houses and worked in the laundry of the nursing home. Yes. And and to to bribe us to go and work in the laundry of the nursing home. Mum used to, um, uh, you know, buy or get me bacon eggs in the morning. Yeah. Which is a big meal. Yeah. And then on the way home, used to buy me a um, bucket of chips and a chocolate thick shake. Oh, and uh, So you had a good breakfast and a good lunch. And I remember yeah. those, I still to this day love chips and love thick shakes. <laughs> Great. So you grew up. Um, mm. uh, tell me, how would you describe your mother? Like, what was she like? My mother's fiery. Yeah. She is not nice. To mm-hmm. um, and she would. Um, she was very. Um, she knew every swear word in the book. Yeah. And she was very, very fiery. So she fought. And uh, but then again, she was fighting. She wasn't angry at anybody. She was just she used to be that way. But listen, mum, mum loves loves her kids. She loves them. She's proud yeah. of them, yeah. and um, and she was good. So she made sure we had things. And my mother used to make sure we had good clothes. Mm. So even though we couldn't do anything and we couldn't really go anywhere, she bought us clothes to so we would look the part. Yes. And make sure she dressed right. Had shoes on, a nice shirt on, a nice clothes. So I always had nice clothes. Yeah. And she would any money she made. She would make sure we, we, we would fit into society. She was trying to, um, even though we're Aboriginal kids, she made sure we looked the part, you know, not the sort of stereotype that people would not accept us. So she tried to make us ex- be accepted. Mm-hmm. And on the Gold Coast, she tried to get us into as much mainstream stuff as we could. So eventually we did what we called nippers, you know, on the beach, running on the beach, and then mm-hmm. then eventually to play rugby league. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I didn't get to play rugby league till I was like 10 which was late for many kids. Most kids start earlier than that. Mm. Um, but um, the only reason we didn't get into those sports was because they used to cost money. They mm. cost fees and that was like a bit of, of you know, couldn't afford it. Sure. And then I think, I think then later, I think there was funds for helping kids to get, Aboriginal kids in particular, get into the sport. So she would, you know, apply for those and get those. So she was very resourceful. Mm. She made sure we were there and got around and got by and eventually we got more meals than we used to get mm. and um mm. you know and that's a big thing you know uh, then i when i look back at it i realized we weren't well we weren't well off yeah. um but yeah. i wasn't don't get me wrong you know people might say oh that's terrible and you know but it wasn't it was i was happy mm. happy as larry mm. Mm. you know i just thought that was the way life was and your dad? my dad my dad used to just work all the time mm. He worked. He used to. He started off on the Gold Coast working as a barman mm. at the Chevron Paradise or the Service Paradise Hotel Chevron. Mm. So that was a big place to work, and uh, and he got by by getting tips, not getting extra dollars for doing what he did. 
Mm. That's when it used to be tipping like that. Mm. And then eventually after that, he worked out that he could get money a lot out of cabs. So he used to drive cabs down on the Gold Coast as a taxi driver. Mm-hmm. And so, and then I worked out that I could get by by doing jobs for him, like wash mm-hmm. his car before he went out. So I got some money for that. Mm-hmm. And Dad was generally generous. He used to give me, I had a little bit of money here and there. Mm-hmm. And he used to make, like, I remember looking at his pay packet from Chevron, it was $90 a week. Yeah. And then, and then what happens is where we lived, we lived in housing commission eventually yeah. and then you pay 25 percent of your money to the housing commission people which was housing commission being public housing yes mm. so he let say i know that i could remember he would get 90 90 94 95 bucks a week and then mm. give 25 dollars a week to the housing commission and then we have some money for food yeah. and then every so often um, we used to make ends meet and if we didn't have enough then we'd run out of, i remember running out of margarine and running out of vegemite mm. and never having milk Yes. So powdered milk. So I hate powdered milk with a passion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so that was that like so that that what I'm saying is that he worked as much as he could, whatever he got he used to do it. And then he used to like to have his little thing. He used to gamble. He used to go to the uh, T A B and then bet on horses to right. win a treble. Tr- tr- yeah. And he won. He used to win. Yeah. Not all the time. I mean, he, he'd just do what he did and he'd just yeah. make a bet. And then he'd win and he used to win maybe, I remember he used to win $300 at a time. Yeah. And then, and then, huge. and then, huge lots of money. That's almost a month's salary. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Okay. And then he'd go off and he'd buy a car. Yeah. We got a car through that. And then there was another time he got a win and we got a TV from that. Yeah. In 1975. And then another time he bought a fridge. So when he win one of the gambling, we used to get these things that helped yeah. our life. I remember one win, he, we bought um, straw matting for the floor. Yes. What was on the floor before then? Oh, just wood. Mm-hmm. Just wood boards that were cold and you could lie on. Mm-hmm. And the straw matting allowed you to lie on there and have a nice blanket. It was sort of yep. a bit, bit nicer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So tell me, um, so fast forwarding now to yeah. the work you do now in ICT, mm. Tell me um, how you first got interested in this. Why? Why did you start? I'll tell you why. Mm. It actually goes back. It goes back to uh, one of my dad's uncles, or sorry, not uncles, one of my dad's brothers, who was my uncle, was a guy called Uncle Kerry. Mm-hmm. And Uncle Kerry knew I liked to pull things apart. Yeah. So I would like to know how things work. And I'd ask a thousand questions of my people I knew about that. So Uncle Kerry bought me a game console that his company, he's an electronics company, he used to sell. Yeah. And it had Pong on it. And then I got introduced to computer games. And then I learned about pinball machines. Yeah. When uh, was this? Uh, about 1972. Mm-hmm. Um, but that stuff, that electronic stuff, that game stuff, is where I love to play games. And, of course, you get... Um, you escape from there, yes. and then from there you'd go. You, then you'd go and find these machines that you could put coins in there to play, which is the coin operating machines that we all play now. Yeah. Okay, the Nintendos and the and the Segas and the likes like that. Mm. Um, so Uncle Kerry gave mm. me a device, and I worked out these consoles. And as I got more consoles, things got bigger and better. Yeah, so you yeah. were very much on the vanguard in terms of being a user, but yeah. At the very start. Fantastic. Yeah, before anything, now it's there. So, and hence that motivation of games. And and I'll go further. Yeah. My, we used to visit my grandmother and I used to be there in the 70s when we were talking about 
things like um, how do we um, advance the status of First Nations people back in the 70s, yes. um, you know, all those things back then. So that's where my knowledge about this started, where, why are we, why are we where we are? So I used to be this little fellow, I said nothing. You hear me talking now. I never said a never said a word, apart from can I have some money for this or this or that. I did what I was told. Yeah. But watched, watched, watched lots, and then. Um, so was she and her friends a real activist? or people around? Mum, I don't think mum was. Yeah. But Nana, my grandmother was. My grandfather was. Right. My uncles were. Yes. Uh, my um and and then, the relations of my relations were so they were there at the vanguard. So mm. at all those things, all the events you can imagine, yeah. um, the 79 boycott, yeah. all the riots about the Springboks playing, mm-hmm. that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when um, we were trying to get Senator Neville Bonner into Parliament, yes. I was listening to that discussion. Seeing, Talk about that a bit more. Not everyone will know who he is. Uh, Neville Bonner was the first senator, yes. one of the first Aboriginal senators in our government, and so seeing him in place was just amazing. And I was at at dinner tables and going to see um, Udru and Knuckle, and and um, you know about that stuff and all yes. these people that were famous that we looked at historically. And I was actually a little boy listening to those yarns, hearing the debates at Sunday school where we had to go to Sunday school. So mm-hmm. boring. But they were talking about that at that point. They were talking about that. Yeah, in those forums, you know, because... What were they saying? Well, well, let me come back a step on the church, sure. the role of the church. Mm. Every church um, was trying to advance the nature of all peoples, not just Indigenous people, but any any group that was sort of disenfranchised mm-hmm. to give them a greater voice. And so the church played a role uh, beyond the fact that they wanted to peddle their religion. Mm. Um and so you you remember that indigenous people getting involved in the church. That's where that movement towards elders came in through the church. Yeah. You know how we got Aboriginal elders. That's yes. that they were firstly elders of the church. And if you noticed uh, in many communities across Australia, the church was involved. You know the Lutherans teaching that the yeah. Catholic faith, the uh, Anglican ch- mm. churches, and then from there those schools that got. A, established the independent schools mm. uh, are then supported indigenous people in those regions all across the country so there's a history with that and then so can I ask then, then, if there wasn't the church involvement um, would elders exist in the same way like you I know, don't think so been the structure? I don't think so I think that um, the term it's not an Aboriginal word firstly yes. It was just something that was brought in. So they were firstly elders of the church, mm. all right? Mm. And so in the World Council of Churches, they're looking at how to in, engage First Nations peoples. And the First Nations peoples, don't get me wrong, embrace religion. Many, many, There's many avid sure. and strong religious people out there that they see the advancement in that. And so that's important. Um, me, I... Um, yeah, I, I think we, you know, you can do all this and talk about, you know, where it all leads to, but surely aren't we talking about the health, welfare and well-being of First Nations people right here and now? Yes. And is that is that achieved through religious adherence? Yeah. Don't want to be controversial, but mm. I'm wondering about that. And then, but I think we should be also trying to do our very best in a Christian way. I think there's some value in this, that you should do to others as you want to be 
done to yourself. You want to be treating treating others as you want to be treated yourself. Mm. And if we keep that reciprocal arrangement, then we'll all be better for it. Yes. Um, and therefore, and then there's principles about, you know, thou shalt not steal and thou, you know. I don't think those commandments are anything different than any culture around the world about how they look after each other. Yes. Including if someone's married to some woman, you don't want to steal her. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because you'll go to war. Yes. <laughs> All right, clans. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. thou shalt not cover the neighbour's wife. Yeah. All this sort of stuff. And mm-hmm. so there's these alignments. So I think that's probably the way that most missionaries would have got a lot of First Nations people then follow that faith. Mm. So going back to your earlier experiences, um, um, sort of listening to um, grandparents and, and others speak about activism, what, what did you think? At that time, I don't know. Well, I I was I heard all that stuff, right? And mm. activism, you're doing something, right? What's the ultimate end game? Yes. So I'm saying that the ultimate end game, when you do all these things that you do about, you know, activism, mm. is really it's about identity. Yes. So you want to establish an identity and a connection. So I think there's two things that I'm really keen about. You want to make sure you who you are because you've got to belong. Yeah. How do you facilitate community in that regard? Mm-hmm. Then next, how do you manage that identity and um, that connection to country? Yeah. So, and how does that tell you who you are? Yeah. If you do that, then those things give you a purpose in a sense of who you are, how you're part of that community. And then furthermore, I think most people want to contribute to that community or mm-hmm. be a part of it. They want to be empowered by that. And I think if you do that, then you've got something going for you. Yeah. Now... Um, and then if you do that in that regard with your identity, then I think you're free to some extent. You've yeah. got, you feel a sense of freedom in a sense. Mm. Now, I do what I do because I've worked. And then I got out of those jobs and then I got into an area where I can do stuff and then help others. And in the work that I'm doing in virtual songlines, which people probably don't know about yet, um, I'm trying to do that to determine identity, develop that identity, in connection to country, and then it can serve multiple purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so where do the people come from? Where are their origins? They, I suppose, um, what are called virtual ancestors. And how does that show you where you belong to that? And then what are those things in that land that relate to your identity, culture, and connection? Yeah. And that's so, virtual songlines. Yeah. So can you tell us a bit about it? Well, I started thinking about this, so you know my history about gaming. So I'm thinking about, well, how do I blend gaming with culture? So Virtual Songlines um, is um, a, a software development toolkit. Mm-hmm. And my company is called Bilby Labs. So Bilby Labs is developing Virtual Songlines. Mm-hmm. And so what we thought is that how, um, what is the best way of doing the recording and preservation and protection of culture? that we know that's out there. Mm-hmm. And now, why I'm building it, the why is a very important question, is that I've got so many influences about this and I'm thinking, what what solution can I bring to the many problems that I'm thinking that are out there that people have described? And it's not just me telling you, describing a problem, there's many people having a description of a problem. And those problems... Give a couple of examples. Well, the Native Title Act, mm-hmm. the Cultural Heritage Acts. Yeah. And all those things about those those that we're not doing it well in terms of 
managing cultural heritage, protecting cultural heritage, and sometimes it's being destroyed. The mm. prime example of that is that Rio Tinto blew up, you know, the Aboriginal art, art over at, um, in WA. Yes. Or the fact that in, in Western Australia. In WA. Yeah. But mindful of that, there's still a lot of work being done by many companies out there which is impacting upon, upon cultural heritage mm -hmm. where it exists. Mm -hmm. Main roads. And damaging it, destroying it. Well, yes. Yeah. Well, asking to damage it and destroy yeah. it. Yeah. All right. So there's principles about asking first. Yes, let's ask first because we're going to build a road here. Can you move your cultural heritage? Mm. And that's what goes on. Yeah. Right. So what we have originally was um, a, a, is a contested terrain. Mm. So the issue is there's a contested terrain. How do we respect and recognise that contested terrain? Um, and what tools have we got for doing that? And my thoughts were, well, if I can digitise that stuff, at least we're telling the story. Yeah. We're respecting what um, original thoughts and culture was within the land mm. and showcasing it some way. Yeah. Now, if you don't do virtual songlines, which is a 3D virtual heritage landscape, you can write a book about it. Yes. Or you can do a song about it. Mm -hmm. Or you can do a play about it. Yeah. Or you can make a documentary about it. Yeah. Or you can um, simply have oral histories where you share it with your family. Mm. Or, or you can have a, a you know, a sculpture. Yeah. You know, so there's all these different ways of telling it. So we're not denying that that goes on. And that's great that happens. What we do is we take every single source of knowledge we can find about a piece of landscape and then embed it in a virtual heritage landscape. Mm -hmm. In a sense, a digital twin yeah. or a multiverse. Yes. And, um, and we're working towards making that. So virtual songlines is a toolkit. And at the moment is a terrain, a virtual heritage terrain. It's not really a multiverse yet, uh, but and it's not really a, a digital twin yet. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to move towards that. And our pathway in the company is slowly doing R&D, uh, finding a suite of um, application pr programming interfaces that can be patched together to give us the ultimate goal of a virtual time machine. Mm -hmm. And where does that time machine take us? When, when does that time machine take exactly. us? Exactly. That's the question. When does it take us to? Mm. Where do you want to go? The question is for other people. Yeah. Mm. Do you want to visit, you know, the arrival of the first fleet into Sydney Harbour? Do you want to see Captain Cook arrive into Botany Bay? Do you want to see the um, police capture Ned Kelly. Mm. Do you want to see the very first ceremony at the Laura Dance Centre, uh, answering up in far north Queensland? Yeah. Do you want to see the Macassans come across and trade with um, the people in Arnhem Land? Mm -hmm. Or do you want to see what the sites were like before they blew them up in Perth? Oh, no, sorry, in WA, I should say, up yes. there with the, the artwork. Yeah. Do you want to see, actually, the artworks being painted? Mm. Right. Yeah. yeah. This is the thing we're building. So rather than watching a Netflix special, mm. why don't we put you in it? Yeah. And that's what we're doing. Yeah. That's really cool. Mm. So uh, um, tell me a bit more about the uh, some of the projects you've taken on so far. Yeah. Well, I mentioned one: um, the arrival of the first fleet in the Sydney Harbour. Yeah. We did that for Australia Day Live, 
with the Department of um, Premiers and Cabinet in New South Wales. We did a big job with um, Cross River Rail for um, their visitor centre, um, which is a project in here building a new underground railway mm -hmm. connecting um, the south side um, um, in through the Brisbane CBD mm -hmm. and all that goes with that. Um, we got an award for one up at Bankford House, which was the, one of the stopover points for the Cobb Co coaches leading up to the Gympie Goldfields. Mm -hmm. We did that from perspective of the Cubby Cubby people who used to dance for the coach people for money back whenever that used to stop there. Mm. Um, we're doing another project for Floating Lands, a big festival up at Noosa where we're reconstructing the cultural heritage uh, connection stories for First Nations people up there. Mm. We did the arrival of the, the Cook's Endeavour into 1770 yeah. um, when he, they went to, to shore and gathered... Um, you know, vegetables and uh, water, fresh water. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the stop there was important to um, alleviate the, the scourge of scurvy. Mm. Um, but then again, they did it. Um, I think they were roused off the land by First Nations people at the time there. Yeah. Um, we, we've done... Um, We've done multiple projects. We're working on projects in Melbourne, which we've done previously before. Some of our work's been on galleries and, and things like that. Mm. And we're slowly um, getting, you know, commissions, and that commission gives us a bit of funding that allows us to solve one of the big problems we've got to make this ultimate goal. Mm -hmm. So it's a step-by-step you know, -step approach. There's about 37 projects, so there's too many to mention, but yeah, all sure. of them are following the same theme. Yeah. Uh, we've done a project out of my country based on the um, endangered species, mm -hmm. just mapping that. So it's um, it's just another way of doing it. So think of our work like a GIS map, and those GIS maps are generally flat, and they generally get written up in a GIS report, which is text-based, and that report goes off and makes some recommendations to government and then that's pretty boring. Mm -hmm. And it's generally um, a document that's seen by probably a couple of dozen people. We're trying to take this type of report and show it to, you know, 120,000 people. So I think people like to know. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if we make it fun and engaging, then uh, I think people can go there and um, and give, give each site some credence yeah. and, and, and careful attention. Yeah. If... You know, for a prime example might be if there was a campsite that was frequented from for thousands of years along the Nebine Creek in far western Queensland, how far in proximity was each camp from one another, mm. which allowed people a sense of privacy within mm. that community? Mm. Mm. Who bothers to think about that? Yeah. I think there's something in it. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And that, and I feel that type of question answers about the social order of that group and how they determined where they were going to go, yeah. and how the elders who made such decisions back then would have known how that group would have been able to harmoniously live together. Mm. It generally, I'll just say, in a crude way, if there's families that have been feuding for the last few weeks, don't put them together. Unfortunately, you can't do that in urban areas where you've got neighbours who fight across back fences. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
Yeah. So given the time frame that, that a lot of these projects are looking at, there, there um, must be a lot of research that's involved. And how do you and your team sift through all of the various and probably competing sources of information mm. that you're getting? Um, my team don't like to sift through it. <laughs> they just want it on a platter. Yeah. Let us do our work and then um, give it to us that way. With the various pieces of information, um, I've got a couple of historians that I engage. Yeah. So they help me and they generally just dump stuff into a Google Drive yeah. um, based on the question I, we might ask. So you've got to carefully curate that information coming to you, mm -hmm. then curate it again mm -hmm. um, in the, into the form we need. Mm -hmm. um, one particular person I work with is a guy by the name of Dr. Ray Kirchhoff. Mm -hmm. And if you track him online, you'll see that he's done a lot of work and a lot of published works. And he generally does a lot of academic rigour mm -hmm. towards it, you know, and making a, a statement and then backing it up with evidence, yeah. you know, which is generally what you need to do. Mm. What we do is we take some of that stuff, sometimes leave some of that stuff too, mm. and then bring it into the framework that we need. Um, to then present, um, and he's been good like yeah. that. Um, and there's others, Libby Connors, and there's a lot of historians in there that I deal with. I can't remember them all. Well, can we for not saying their names? But um, but we need them all. And so from that, there's a lot there we would say. So I would pick pick a moment, say, hey, and I keep I, with the people I deal with. The way I generally ask questions is is a hub and spoke model. The 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 hub being the campsite. Mm -hmm because we want to know where people occupied land. Yeah. And then where were the spokes? Where did they go off and hunt? Mm. Where did they go off and gather? Where did they go off for ceremony? Mm. Where did they go off to, to, to travel to another camp or moment? And in effect, if you look at that camp as a hub-and-spoke model and also the suite of camps out there, you then come into this sort of council-negotiated land use arrangement between groups. Mm. Now, I don't think when you really, really break it down, that's too dissimilar to the way that a local council in the modern day works. Yeah. Where was waste management? Where were your shopping centres? Yeah. Where were your playgrounds? Where were your places of ceremony? Mm. This is, you know, so when people look at First Nations people and think they're, they're you know, backwards or whatnot, I don't think so. Yeah. I think that the sophistication of the society then to now is uh, a continuum. Yeah. And, um, but at the moment we've got all these modern things and we all think we're all so smart from the technologies that we've got. But then once we do that, we then sit there and we then we complain about, the, you know, the, how much time we're spending on our mobile phones mm. or things of that nature. And we've got to, oh, we've got to limit this and, and all these, everybody's making an app to solve a problem that we've causing. Yeah. And we can talk about that all over the shop, yeah. including, um, you know, um, some of the great mistakes we've made in the past um, in terms of advancing our society. Because um, every step we take forward, every two steps forward, there's a step back. Do you consider your work political at all? Is it? Do, do you have a political agenda when no. doing this? No, no, I don't. But I do like people to ask questions yes. and then to spark debate and then yeah. think about what that, what the visions that we're doing might trigger in terms of a memory and mnemonic for people. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, and 
and we want to sort of say what went on and then let people yeah. make um, a judgment. I think if we build it well and then say, for instance, our work could be used in schools mm. uh, where people play out and walk in the footsteps of our ancestors in, say, an application for, um, say, historical Sydney, then um, people will then understand what was there before and what came after um, and put, what is it, put the shoe on the other foot. Yes. Or, the, or more to the point for culture, the feather foot. <laughs> you know, just a way of covering your feet so you don't get sore. Yeah, you know, right. Use feathers. Yes, right. <laughs> feather foot. Um, and that would be another way of people to live in that space and then see what they decide. Um, so on the political question, tread carefully. You don't want to... You, you want to... We don't want to be political. Yeah. But sometimes you can't avoid it. Yeah. And we're not taking sides. Yes as best as we can. And yet it's potentially incredibly powerful to be able to to provide a forum mm. through which people can yeah. see a new perspective. Yeah. We don't take sides. I mean, we, we um, you know, I don't take sides. Yeah. I don't take sides because I've got a dad and a mum. Sure. <laughs> which yeah. comes back to that other story. Yeah. What are some of the upcoming plans that you have? Well, the big one, well, there's actually a few big ones, um, we started talking with um, the proprietors of shopping centres to see if we can activate stuff in their shopping centres. We're presently talking to Len Lease about its holdings. Yeah. And um, the Sunshine Plaza might be a cab, the first cab off the rank in that regard. They've got big screens and they want to, and they're thinking about how they give shoppers an experience that is practical reconciliation with that establishment based on the fact that it's on Aboriginal lands. So we're looking at how we might make that work. Yeah. And even using that as a way to trigger people going off into museums and galleries in the area that might be showcasing First Nations stories. Mm. So that's that, That's pretty exciting. Um, next, we've got a project we're delivering as an augmented reality app for Noosa, Noosa Regional Council and the Noosa Gallery, mm. where we're activating um, Hastings Street, mm. um, that walk, that boardwalk. Yeah. And we're going to put four sites there to give people a real immersion into the cultural heritage stories of that area, which mm -hmm. is, you know, which is to some extent stepping on the toes of their brand, Noosa. Yeah. Noosa Heads. Yeah. It's a Noosa Heads brand, which is not really an indigenous brand. No. So we're doing that one. And then thirdly, we've got another one. We've got a few, but I'll do this third one being um, the work we're doing with the, the Gwich'in people in the um, Yukon. And we're looking at taking our work from here over to Canada to showcase the First Nations connection to country over there. And in particular, their concern being that youth are spending time on their phones and gamification or games they play and there's nothing really about culture and they're not mm. listening to their elders. So we're trying to blend the elders' knowledge into the gamification of their culture and that might be, we might have a, a good little solution for them. That's fantastic. Was that uh, one of the purposes as well of some of the work that you're doing here too? The mm. sort of bridging that gap between youth and yes, and, exactly. and elders. Well, I think um, I, I think our people, you know, young and old, talk to each other, and there's such a lot of sharing. People say if you don't capture this story from this elder, then it'll die with them, and then it's gone. Mm. That's not true. Okay. Uh, it's it's a good academic argument for mm. why they want to get funding to do yeah. what they do, but yeah. the truth is that. Grandmother talks to grandson. Yeah. You know, when has that not happened? Or grandmother talks to granddaughter? Mm. Gee. 
and then they've got some stories to tell. They might not tell it like a clear instruction, but every time you get some piece of knowledge, and over the years you you gain this body of knowledge mm, mm. that you don't even know you're getting. Yeah, yeah. So I just think that um, it's not that it's not it's not like it's not going it's to be not shared. A massive bridge that yeah. needs to be built. You know, just look at any dance troupe that's going on around the country. Yeah. There's someone teaching another one to dance, and then when you when you see these dancers, you might say, "Oh, those kids that are learning to dance, that's great, isn't it?" Mm. Um, but they might not be any good. But in years to come, they'll be better and better and better and better, and then eventually you'll see them being the leaders of the next generation of dance dancers. Yeah. And the question with that becomes, what are the appropriate dancers to be danced? Yeah. You know, and um, that's an ongoing debate between First Nations groups. Yeah. yeah, which raises an interesting point as well. I um, asked about the sort of the, the difficulty in obtaining historical accuracy, mm. you know, for mm. want of a better term, because you know there are so many different perspectives to any anything mm. that happens. Um, how does that work at the community level if mm. you're sort of trying to gather stories where there are in fact competing stories from yeah. from different groups or different families or different individuals? Yeah. I think um, many of the groups out there um, are trying to get an understanding of what their connection to country is. Mm. And if you go around, and I've spent a lot of time there in the country, and I'm still watching and still listening, I don't know all the answers, but my thoughts are that people are just trying to get as best and true knowledge as they can of their country mm. and, and understand what those rights and responsibilities are. And when we had the last night of theme of caring for the country, Mm-hmm. What are the actions we take to care for country? Mm-hmm. Now, dance could be one part of it, mm-hmm. all right, and getting the right dance mm-hmm. and not appropriating somebody else's dance. Yes. And try to work out what that is. And I think that unless you dance and have the debate and then think that you've got the right thing, then you then you don't know that you have or you haven't. So I don't think, I mean, a lot of our people tend to be, they tend to be critical of another person who's not getting it right. Yeah. But I think that everybody's got their own... I think cultural and personal truth. Yes. I think we should respect that, yeah. and if and and then quietly and carefully see if we can resolve those differences. Yeah. And uh, there's so many good leaders who lead by listening. Yeah. Um, and that's the hardest thing for people to do. They tend to gung ho into the solution without hearing other people's points of view. Yeah. And. Um, and I think in the particular relevance to stories that relate to country, everybody's got their own shared historical knowledge that they've been given. And some might not even have it, but some, a lot would have it. And then let them have that out and let them share that. And then, uh, and then really the whole lot of work that we're dealing with is like a jigsaw puzzle mm. with lots of pieces missing. All right, so we've got to let that jigsaw puzzle come together and then eventually we'll get a better knowledge of that. And the reason why there's pieces missing is because for so long, as I said earlier, I've used the word contested terrain, people have not been on country, they're not being able to work on country, not being able to action on country, and so they're just trying to get that connection back. And the native title process is trying to show what those rights and responsibilities were, and that's what we're trying to get back to. So. It's just an ongoing generational debate and it's not going to finish shortly and let's just get, try to get as much knowledge as we, as we can and then 
and then we'll be better for it yeah. um, and better for the communication of it and the better for the sharing of it for the next generation to come as we as we um, uh, get more access yeah and it yeah. goes on to and having said that then you look at that in terms of all the industries that are trying to be on be action and active on our contested terrains you know like I said earlier main roads construction mines mm. Um, um, housing, the, the housing market, the councils, local councils mm. and the state governments and the federal governments all trying to do their best to advance our country and um, and First Nations people want to just um, be in that debate yeah. um, and it grows from there. Such a big question. Uh. You know, what we talk about uh, much more rather than contested terrain or, or anything that um, sort of uh, gives the idea of things being really separate and contesting, mm. we talk about reconciliation. Yeah. So what to you is the relationship or the mm. overlap or the mm. intersect between mm. these two ideas? Mm. And how can we, in fact, get deeper and less surface level mm. at reconciliation, mm. which is really where we tend to land yep. at this point? Well, I think that uh, you're right there. The, we got the only way forward is with some relevance or some action towards reconciliation. It's got to be that. Okay, um, we can't. What did someone say to me the other day? One First Nations fellow saying we've got to make, we've got to build, get people trained up to be built shipbuilders. He said. Mm-hmm. I said shipbuilders. What do you want to get shipbuilders? Said, oh, because then we can put them on the boats and send them back. <laughs> 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 and I said, oh, okay. Well, we got planes now. Yeah. You know, but, but the thing is, when they're not, it's not going to happen, no. right? And so you've got to work out how you, given what's happened, how do you then reconcile some way forward? But my thoughts will be on all of it. It's got to be practical reconciliation. And so people will spend a lot of time in their workplaces, organisations, businesses, government, and the like, writing up these reconciliation action plans. Mm. And but a lot of them are superficial, like you mentioned, and they're mm. just like, oh, let's just recognise. Aboriginal people before every meeting. Sure. What does that mean? So what? Yeah. So what? Yeah. Are First Nations people better for that? Mm. Really? Mm. No. It's just a word. Mm. Um, even sorry is just a word. Yes. It doesn't fix anything, really. Yeah. It yeah. might give somebody some sense of, oh, you've done that. But the question that's up now being asked, and I think it's been asked everywhere, is what are you going to do about it? Yeah. What are you going to do? Yeah. What action are you going to take? Mm. If you've got something that relates to community engagement strategies for the First Nations people, have an Aboriginal person employed doing that. Yeah. Okay. People have to live. To live in this society now, you've got to have an economic base. Yeah. So we've got to get to that point. And if organisations, at the very least, are doing things, put people into roles mm. or, or sponsor projects. Yeah. You know, yeah. if we're talking about um, an environmental impact study that relates to how do we repatriate the land after some construction to make sure it works in with the environment, well, employ First Nations people planting bush foods mm. around that construction. Mm. All of it, all of the work that goes on can easily embed Indigenous people in that process. Yeah. If you're going to um, do a cultural heritage assessment and ask them to move their debitage, why don't we actually, before you even do that work, 
talk about what those heritage values are and map that in a real tangible way, mm. but not map it with a white flower company, but an indigenous company that has got those skills to do that work and engage the community in that process. And where I was going to there was, we're always trying to improve our landscapes, to be, to be custodians of our landscapes to, so that it can sustain us. Now that's a principle that people say, everybody can learn from First Nations people. Well, we're doing it now to some extent, but without those First Nations people involved. Mm. So if you take a job in, say, Canberra and, and, and say, regentrify a building uh, from where it is to give it a more community-type feel, then there's no reason why you can't then engage uh, an Aboriginal person who's very good on bush food and, and doing a indigenous landscape design to support that. And in the even even in the signposting of that, engage indigenous people and in how you might even name that building. Yeah. All right. And then name it for the 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 utility that that place used to give to First Nations people since time immemorial. Yeah. So for anyone who wants to find out more about your work, where should they go? I've got our website, so yeah. www.virtualsongwines.org. Yeah. And then there's stuff there. And then um, just search search virtual songlines and then um, and then keep watching this space. Yeah, it sounds like you've got some really, really exciting projects mm. coming up. Let's hope. Thank you again for your time. Your cheers. As Brett said already, you can check out his work at virtualsonglines.org. We've also included links to various resources in the show notes for this episode, which are available at our website, bridgingpeoples.com. There you'll find resources and information on Brett's work, as well as some of the events and issues that he mentioned during this interview. And while you're there, why don't you check out our online Bridging Peoples Academy? This is a forum where I teach you everything that I've learned over the years as an academic and aid and development practitioner on what it takes to work effectively at the local level. There's a free course that you can sign up to that will give you some idea of what we're about. Thank you for joining me. This is a Bridging Peoples podcast. Thank you.